0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. And so let's hear from God's Word. We continue in our series through the book of Ephesians, now uh, turning to chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the fifth commandment with a promise, Oh, sorry, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Well, we continue in our Ephesians series. And as you see, as we flip that page to our last chapter, we are almost done. We started the year working through Ephesians, and what a great time it's been to just sit and to learn from God's Word, and we're here now in our final chapter. And it's a good place, as we are almost done with this, to remind ourselves again about Paul's method of teaching through this great letter to the church in Ephesus. The method of this whole letter, that, uh, this whole letter he has written is that Paul is never, he never expresses an obligation of obedience without expressing the motivation of God's grace in our life. If you're just joining us in this series, this will help uh, explain where his commands in chapter 6 come from and where they fit into the whole letter. If you're not just joining us, but you've been with us the whole time, this is great as a reminder. Chapter 1 to 3 is all about doctrine. It's all about God's plan of salvation. It's all about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And what a blessing that we have because of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection. Then chapter 4 through 6 is all about how we live out these truths in our lives. And the order of that is, is so important. You are not what you do. You are what has been done for you. And what you do doesn't determine who you are, but who you are in Christ determines how you live. What Paul is showing us is so simple, and that is that Christians are people whose practical lives are driven by the truth of God. Everything in chapter 1 through 3 is all the truth of God and the beauty of His grace and the richness of His kindness and mercy. And 4 to 6 is then these practical areas, as you see in this passage, very practical when it comes down to family and our work. The truth of God's blessing is by faith in Jesus Christ, once it's deeply grasped, will drive the most basic spheres of our life when we grasp the grace of God and what he has done for us it will be the fuel for everything that we do even the things that we might think as mundane and daily and just our daily responsibilities and so today we talk about these two two very basic spheres of life parenting and work and I'm going to tell you it's this is honestly likely better suited for two sermons Instead of one, that doesn't mean it'll be twice as long today, but what it does mean is that I'm going to give you this 30,000 foot view, this 30,000 foot view of of how the grace of God motivates these spheres, how it fuels our lives. Verses 1 to 9 are really part of a larger section that we read, starting in chapter 5 when Paul is talking about marriage. And there's something that all three of these areas of life have in common, of marriage and parenting and, and our work. At the heart of these three relationships is a call for Christians to live radically counter-cultural lives. What do I mean? Well, here we see that Paul speaks to both parts of these relationships, both the subordin- those who are in a subordinate or submissive role, and those are, who are in a position of authority. To the wives, he says, submit to your husbands, and husbands, lay down your life for your wife. To the children, he says, obey your parents, and, and fathers, make Disciples of your children, bondservants, obey your earthly master. Masters, do not abuse your authority. And in every case, we are to see that following Jesus requires us to say a radical no to ourselves, It is a laying down of our life. It is a self-giving to others. And this is outrageous in today's culture. It's outrageous to think that the whole method of God's instruction to us is to lay down your life, to not pursue yourself, to give of yourself in sacrificial love. And I think what Paul says about work here will actually help prepare us to think about the family and parenting. And so I'm actually going to start with that first. I want to start first with verse 5 through 9 and then come back as we finish to talk about parenting, it's good for me to spend just a, a moment as we talk about work discussing Paul's what he's referring to when he's talking about masters and bondservants. Some translations, maybe in yours as you read through this passage, will start off uh, by saying, Slaves, obey your masters. And this understandably and appropriately hits a very raw and sensitive nerve even today as we read this passage. It's difficult for us to, to not read a phrase like this, slaves, obey your earthly masters, or bond servants, obey your earthly masters, without an American understanding of the violent and oppressive and evil practices of slavery in American history. Slavery in America was, and its symptoms today, continue to be grossly, sinful, and one of the greatest tragedies in American history is that people who claim Christ were slave owners or were complicit or even negligent to speak up against the evil of slavery. And so it's important to kind of figure out what is Paul getting at with this, because many churches over history have even used this passage as a way of, of Permitting American slavery, so it's important to understand that this is not the kind of slavery that Paul is talking about. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on race. Slavery was not lifelong. Slavery did not constitute a different differences between social status and social class and education or even lifestyle. Slavery, in Paul, as Paul is talking about, was economically motivated. It was often an arrangement between two parties to pay off a debt. Today, when when people amass uh, enormous debt, they declare bankruptcy, uh, they default on their debt, and in the ancient world, people would work as bond servants. They would enter into this relationship where they would be able to pay off their debt, and it had an end point, and they paid it off. The translation used here is bond servants, and and this translation is trying to speak into that ancient way of of what those relationships looked like, and it's very different from what we understand. Much more can be said on this, um, but for our sake today, it is much closer for seeing this relationship within the realm of bosses to employees, rather than seeing this passage through the eyes of Western or American slavery. And so understanding the difference is going to help us understand Paul's motivation, understanding his instruction to those in authority and those under authority. And so as we consider our work, Paul is laying down principles for our work life. Consider this, if you're talking to a young man or woman and they're senior in college and they're just about to finish up their studies and you ask him, have you considered what you're going to do in your life? Have you considered what you're going to do after college. And this person says, yes, I've decided to pursue my call to serve the Lord. Well, I imagine that what would come to mind, first and foremost, is that this person is talking about becoming a pastor, becoming a minister, or perhaps becoming a missionary and, and, and going overseas to spread the gospel to the corners of the earth. And this is primarily because you and I don't have a very good Biblical view of work. Paul says, do your work with a sincere heart. Why? Because you are doing the will of God and you're working for the Lord, not for man. In everything that you do, in every work, in every vocation, you are doing the work of the Lord. But when someone says to us, I'm doing the work of the Lord, we assume that they're in ministry. That they're getting paid by a church. They're getting paid by a mission. As soon as you and I think about the Lord's work and exclusively think about the work within the four walls of a church or mission organization, we're moving away from a biblical view of work. What is a biblical view of work? The biblical view of work is this. God feeds us. But instead of feeding us directly from His hand and Him showing up at our doorstep, He gives us farmers. He gives us blue apron, right? He gives us people that cook. He gives us restaurants. Instead of God feeding us directly, He says, says, yes, I am a God who feeds my children. And He does that through people who work and plant and reap and harvest. People who prepare meals. What is a biblical view of work? That God protects us, that God is our protector. But instead of guiding our cars in the night, to our home and into our garage safely he he gives us engineers and scientists and technicians to produce street life street lights and safety features on our car and airbags and and wheels that don't blow out just by going down the road a biblical view of work is that god heals us but instead of showing up in the hospital room physically he gives us doctors and nurses God defends us, but instead of sending angels into every home to walk with us <clears throat> as we see them guiding us in our lives, he, he sends locksmiths to secure our doors. He gives us police officers to patrol our streets. God tells us that everything comes from him, it all, everything flows from his hand, but the way that he communicates that he is the one who feeds us and protects us and guides us and sustains us is often through the direct work of others. All work is God's way of meeting our needs and giving you life through the work of other people. This is a biblical view of work, that all work is God's work. All work that is not evil is work that can be done unto the Lord. Remember who Paul is talking to. He's talking to the church. He's he's talking to people who are called to, to push the broom. He's talking to people who are called to, to serve uh, others, uh, serve, uh, to wash serving dishes and to feed people. He is call, he's talking to people who are called to, to clean the animal pens. And he is saying, You're working for the Lord, you're doing the Lord's work. If you never cleaned your house, you would die. They have a whole show about this, right? <laughs> What if, Let's just see what happens if I never clean it. They have a whole show about it. People are, are kicked out of the house. The house is burned down. The person goes to counseling. People, we will die. Some of this hits too close to home for some of you. If we didn't have plumbers, we would die. If we didn't have data engineers to update my cloud, we would die. <laughs> right? We would die. God's provision flows from his hands and manifests itself through workers doing God's work. All work is God's way of meeting needs and bringing life through the work of other people. Do you have a biblical view of work? And if this is true, it means that if you don't treat the server at restaurants with dignity, you don't have a biblical view of work. If you, don't, if you look down on people who are pushing the broom or cleaning the toilet, you don't have a biblical view of work. In this way, theology infuses our work with meaning. It infuses everything that we do with meaning. There isn't any kind of work that, is God's, that isn't God's work. Also, theology changes our motivation. It changes us why we work and how we work and the, and the motivation that gets us up in the morning. my son asked me, why do you work? Why do you work? Why do you work? Why do you go to work every day? And the easy answer, and maybe you've answered this, well, do you like your clothes? Do you like your house? Do you like the stuff you have? I have to go to work and do it. We fail to understand the biblical view of work if that's what we say. And that's the answer I gave. And I thought about it later and I actually came back to him and talked to him again. I said, Hey, ask me that question again. You know why I go to work? When I work, I'm actually being like God. I'm enjoying him. I'm imitating him. I'm creating. I'm serving. I'm helping people. I am creating as God has created. I'm being like him and imitating His, His, his way of resources and creativity and innovation and serving others, and meeting people's needs. And so we work with joy. So does this mean you don't get to buy me stuff anymore? No, he didn't say that. But it changes our motivation. Paul recognizes the fact that you and I have earthly bosses. He doesn't, say, he doesn't just bring us up into the clouds and say, I just want you to think about your work and just doing God's work. He recognizes that you and I serve an earthly boss. Some of you work for a boss that is really easy to work for. You work for an earthly boss that deserves the high pay that they have. They deserve the house that they have, the nice car that they have. They deserve to come in late and leave early. They, and, and you don't mind because they do good work. You like being under his or her leadership because they deserve the honor that is theirs as your boss. But then some of you have an earthly boss that is not like that. Some of you have an earthly boss that you hate working for. Because your boss doesn't deserve the big office. Your uh, boss does not uh, come to work early, but they come late and they leave early. They treat you poorly, and you are not motivated to put in an extra ounce of energy and work than, 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 than anything that is required for this person because they don't deserve it. You don't work hard because you lack motivation to work for a person who seems incompetent. You have an earthly boss like that? Some of you are good, are doing good, faithful work, and some of you are not. Some of you are doing good work unto the Lord, motivated by a biblical view of work. Some of you are not. And it might come down to whether or not you like your work environment, if you're working really well. If you like your work environment, you like your boss, you like the people you work for, you make a good wage, you believe your work is meaningful. Those are things that can contribute to you feeling like that you're working well and you're going to put in hard work. Paul says this, When you work, whatever you do, look past your earthly boss and see your heavenly boss. Whatever you do and whatever job you are in, look past your earthly boss and see your heavenly boss when you work. That's who you work for. Work as if you have your eye on Jesus, who is your heavenly boss. If the core of your work is doing God's work, then your real boss is the Creator, your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Do you see how this changes the motivation then? Our motivation for our work is not dictated by the competency of our earthly boss. It is not dictated by the competency of our fellow employees. It's not dictated even by our wage and the level of wage that we have or the privilege we have or the responsibility we have. Our motivation is fueled by the simple fact that we work for the Lord and we're doing his work. The minute a person becomes a Christian, they ought to become very different from the people around them in the workplace. They ought to become good workers. They ought to become the best workers in their organization. I knew an employee in town who was um, a uh, high up there, supervisor in a local uh, company in town, and every year he was responsible for hiring dozens of seasonal workers dozens and he had to go through resumes and he had to do dozens of interviews and he told me you know as i talked about how is that what is it like i mean what are some people you talk to and 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 what are some great workers and he said you know what's really the most discouraging thing of it all christians are the worst people to hire i was stunned by that i was like wow that's just, and this is a christian this is a christian employer and he's talking about he's like the worst people are christians this is a result of, of, I think, because Christians appropriately, uh, they drop a bad motivation. So they say, I, I'm no longer motivated by, by climbing the corporate ladder. I do not find my identity in what I have and what I accomplish. I don't find my identity in my, my salary, but in my identity in Christ and his grace for me. And so there's forgiveness and there's grace, and I don't need to, I don't need to do a good job. And so they, they drop a good a bad motivation, but they don't pick up a good motivation by saying, but I am working for the Lord, and so I'm going to work the hardest. I'm going to train myself. I'm going to to be educated and learn, and I'm going to always be out front doing the extra thing because I'm working for Jesus. We're not to be motivated by finding our identity in our career, but we are to be motivated by the fact that our real boss is Jesus, our redeemer and creator. Christians need to be the best employees. Not because we're hungry for power or authority, not because we have something to prove to our employers or anyone else, and not because of money, but because we believe we're working for the Lord and He's working through our vocation to bring about His plans for human flourishing and the good of others. So we give ourselves to it. We become the best at it. There's also something here for bosses, which is... Helpful, as he talks here about bosses and how to act, he says, likewise, do the same to them. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Do you have employees? You know, maybe you're not the broom pusher or the, uh, maybe you're not the dishwasher do you have employees? Maybe you have do you have people who report to you? Are there people who are entrusted to you that you are writing, you're signing their paycheck and you are coaching them? Are you a manager of one or ten or a hundred people? The gospel of grace must transform your perspective on your employees. And here is the striking claim, and profoundly offensive to our cultural idol of. Climbing that corporate ladder, no matter if you are a wealthy executive with thousands of employees that report to you, or you are the lowest of employees in that organization, both of you are living out the same kingdom purpose. The absolute same kingdom purpose. The Christian boss realizes that he is not Lord the Christian boss realizes that she is not Lord. It is not about her. It is not about him. The Christian boss realizes that he is not special, but is a gracious recipient of God's grace. What does it mean that God shows no partiality? This is interesting. Let's say there's an employee and a supervisor, and there's a dispute. And maybe you've heard of a friend, they and they're just griping and venting to you about their work environment, and they're talking about their boss. They're talking about how hard it is. You may be inclined to say, I know you hate your boss, but he's your boss. And because he is your boss, he is in a position of authority. He has a greater degree of responsibility. It's easier to replace you than it is to replace the boss. And being the boss affords to him or her a degree of license when it comes to these sorts of things for how they run their company. He's the boss, he's allowed to do that. To say that God is impartial is to say this God is on nobody's side but his own. God does not deliberate like that and say, you know what, like he's the boss. And so he has a higher degree of of, of responsibility. Uh, Things weigh much harder on his heart at night, and that's why he gets paid to do what he does. And so you kind of have to put up with some of this. Paul says God is impartial. He does not think like that. He is not on the boss's side. He is not on the employee's side. He is on his side. And he matches everyone's uh, actions and words based on his character and his nature. He doesn't pick sides. Again, we have an unbiblical view of work when we equate moral superiority to those who have a better education, a better position at their work, a better paying job. We even treat people differently based on what they wear to work, either blue-collar or white-collar. God says, you may be a supervisor to them, but I am a supervisor of you. So you are merely a steward of what I ultimately give. You are a steward of what is ultimately mine. Managers are to treat their employees with the dignity that belongs to them as people who belong ultimately to the Lord. Bosses and managers and supervisors, you are to treat your employees as people who belong ultimately to the Lord. And so we are not harsh. And so we di- we dignify them in our words and our actions. We care for them, we steward them, we nurture them, knowing that they are doing work unto the Lord in no greater degree than you are. I wore these gold cufflinks on my wedding day, and my father-in-law told me that these cufflinks—that he had some cufflinks that he thought I should wear to the wedding. And I thought, that's really nice, I'm probably going to hate them. You know, how old are these things? And and at first, I I thought whatever the tuxedo shop would give me when I rented my tux would probably be cooler than anything my father-in-law could give me. Uh, But when I got them, I looked at them. They looked outdated. They looked very unspectacular. They were gold, but they were were not shiny. The only thing that stood out to them is if I flipped them on the bottom, it was a simple engraving on the underside that said, 2GV from FS. And I said, what's this? He said, his name is George Varga. He said it, sa- it stands for "to George Varga from F- Frank Sinatra." <laughs> and he said, "Okay, I- okay, I'll wear these." Okay, <clears throat> you know. And then he said, "Don't lose them." I knew where these cufflinks were on our honeymoon more than I knew where my wife was on the honeymoon. Okay. <laughs> Managers are to treat their employees as if their employees ultimately belong to the Lord. When you know what you have and you know the value, you know the dignity, you say, this is special. I'm going to be careful. I'm going to know the the heart. I'm going to know how to care for these things well. This is important. We should not treat them as just like, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, I'll just get another one. If I lose these cufflinks, I'll just get another one. They belong to the Lord. They are, in a way, irreplaceable. We are to treat our employees as if they ultimately belong to the Lord. Do you have a biblical view of work? See, Paul, again, it's a 30,000-foot view. We try to come down to a street level a little bit. How we work, we work unto the Lord, how we lead others in our work as if they ultimately belong to the Lord. So let's talk about families now, okay? (laughs) Okay. It's hard, again, moving to these things, and it's hard to talk about these two topics. It's really two sermons. I'm going to try to put it in one. And I'll have to give you, again, a 30,000-foot view. I'm not going to fix your parenting. <clears throat> why, talk about work? why talk about work and parenting together? And I think there is, there is something good here, and it's good for them to be together. Here's why. Because parenting is primarily an issue of doing clear, loving, consistent gospel work. And so it is good that Paul brings these together. He's talking about work and parenting because both are good gospel work and they require us to do consistent, thoughtful, clear, and loving gospel work. Your work is a, primarily a gospel issue. Your marriage, as we talked last week, is primarily a gospel is- issue. Your parenting is primarily a gospel issue. In ancient times, fathers owned their children, amen? No, I'm just kidding. Fathers owned their children. They were their property, meaning they could do anything they wanted to do to their children. They could kill them if they wanted. They could do what they wanted to their children. And so a culture where a father was created and encouraged to do whatever he wanted, here comes Paul's message to the fathers. And he says, he says I know you've been taught to, to lead with an iron rod, to lay down the law, to be a kind of, 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 of tyrant and dictator in your home, and you've been given that privilege to do that. And then Paul says, don't provoke your children to anger. And this would have just come as a shock to the hearers at the time. They would have been shocked by this it would have been such a different approach to parenting than anyone would have ever known don't make your children perpetually angry do you think about that is that a motivation of yours when you are about to instruct or discipline or interact with your children do you think to yourself is this going to set them off is this going to frustrate them is this going to is this, does this clearly understand their frame and their demeanor and their personality? Paul says, don't provoke them to anger. And there's many ways that we do provoke them. This passage is in opposition to the two most prominent cultural narratives at the time, and really are the most prominent, well, really the most prominent cultural narratives on parenting today. One view says this, here's one dominant cultural uh, cultural um, narrative on parenting. You're the parent, lay down the law, don't take any prisoners, train your child like you would train a dog, and eventually by their five or six, like they'll be able to, they'll do everything you tell them to do. That's a narrative, like just lay it down hard. You are the police and they are the subjects of your rule. Do what needs to be done. The other view says this, create such a nurturing environment in the home where your children will turn out healthy and balanced. Don't impose your views. Give them a healthy space so that they can figure out for themselves their path in life. That's another dominant cultural narrative. Paul says both are wrong. He gives a third option. He says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to bring up? It means to nurture into maturity. Is that your role as a parent is to lead your children in such a way that eventually they do not need you. Some of you are not bringing up your children. Because the thought of these children going off and not needing you terrifies you. You want them to need you. You find your life identity in your children knowing that they need you. Paul says, bring them up, mature them, nurture them so that they don't need you. What does it mean to discipline? It means to correct, to exercise loving authority. It means to rebuke. It means to correct and to change a course. It means to to even come down in in ways that sting, in the way that the Lord disciplines us. That when we are disciplined, we don't like it when it happens, but it is good for us. It's for our health and well-being. What is the instruction of the Lord? It means to teach them what is right in God's eyes. It is to teach them the narratives of the cultural story and to teach them the narratives of God's story and say, do you see what people believe? Do you see what what our world loves? Do you see what what you are seeing in your world as we go around and we we see on TV and in our schools? You want to look at what God says. We train them in what God says. Parents, how often do you combine moments of discipline with patient insight-giving instruction into how how it ties into the heart of God's demonstration of love for us? How often do you pair discipline and instruction and correction with thoughtful insight to the heart of how it fits into God's grace and his story of love for us? Remember what was said before about work? All work is God's way of meeting needs and bringing life through the work of others. Here is God's amazing, amazing plan. He makes his invisible authority visible by sending visible authority figures into the family as representative, mom and dad. This means that every time you exercise authority as a parent in the lives of your children, it must be a beautiful picture Of the authority of God a beautiful life-giving picture of God's authority in our life Paul Tripp's parenting book is helpful so helpful commentary on this topic I encourage you to become familiar with it and read it and read it again I'll take my own advice on that how about that here's a quote from this book in the lives of your children you are the look of God's face You are the touch of his hand. You are the tone of his voice. You must never exercise authority in an angry, impatient way. You must never exercise authority in an abusive way. You must never exercise authority in a selfish way. Why? Because you've been put into your position as a parent to display before your children how beautiful, wise, patient, guiding, protective, rescuing, and forgiving God's authority is. Parents, I'll say this to you because I know that there is a lot of you here. You and I have a disease in our heart that causes us to take the authority, the borrowed and delegated authority from God and to use it for selfish gain with our children. We have a disease in our heart called sin that desires to make that authority all about us, our comfort, instead of God's self-giving love. Children, I'll say this to you, and I know we have many here this morning. You have a disease in your heart. You have a disease in your heart that is called sin, and how it manifests itself in one way is this way. You desire to resist God's authority in your life. You desire to resist what your parents say to you. And as your parents desire to use their discipline and authority in a way for their own gain, you desire to do the opposite of what your parents say. God wants you to know something that's good for you, children, that is good for you. The kids that are here, I want you to see something good. I want to warn you that this is going to sound crazy to kids, And it might sound crazy because of our sinful hearts. And here is what God says. Life and freedom is found not in you doing what you want and not listening to your parents. Life and freedom is found in humbly submitting to the authority of your parents as a way of humbly submitting to the authority of God in your life. And you may think, that it's ridiculous if your parents are doing something stupid, if they're doing something that you don't agree with, that you have a right to do what you want. And God says in his love for you, you will not find freedom doing that. You will not find freedom disobeying your parents. You will find love, freedom, and forgiveness in obeying your parents. He says it'll go do this because it'll go well with you. It is the first command with a promise. Look at this good news. Your parents are here as a representative from God, and they are sinful. I've got a room full of people and a bunch of kids, and I'm going to tell you, your parents are sinners. And they need God's grace. But get this too. Children, you are sinners. And it is in your heart, and you are prone to the the opposite of what your parents say. And God wants you to know it is good. It is good. It is good to, to humbly come under his authority and the authority of your parents. Children, if you resist the authority of your parents, you will deepen, you will only deepen your desire to serve yourself and it you will ultimately, it'll ultimately lead you to rejecting the authority of God where the grace of God is found. Don't do that. Nothing good happens when we resist the grace of God. And the grace of God in your home is to give you parents to love you, to lead you, to discipline you, to instruct you. Don't resist that wonderful grace. Parents, if you exercise your authority as a parent in, a, in an abusive and self-serving way, you will only deepen the natural tendency in your heart to make it all about you and your comfort and your way of life. Don't do it. Nothing is, is good. Nothing good comes from deepening our resistance to express our authority in a loving and patient way. You know, at the center of all this discussion, don't you see how we can just keep going, we can talk more? I'm going to stay up in the, in the 30,000 foot view, but here's where we're going to come down to the ground. At the center of all this discussion of marriage and work and parenting is what makes the cross of Jesus that much more necessary. That quote from the book of, on parenting from Paul Tripp, the, the instruction from Paul for parents saying, Do, don't provoke your children to anger. The call for children to obey their parents and honor your mother and father. It's like, what hope is there? First of all, I've failed at all that. Second of all, I'm going to fail more at that. And this is what makes the cross of Jesus all the more necessary and necessary. Powerful. Jesus was brought to earth to die on the cross because our children desire to exercise their own independent authority to resist what is good and to rebel against God's good. Children, Jesus came to die because you resist your parents' authority. Parents, Jesus had to come to die because... The delegated authority that was given to you is abused. And instead of using it in the discipline and instruction of God to give life to your children, you use it for your own gain. To get them to act in a way that is comfortable for you. Whether you're a parent or a child or a boss or an employee, Jesus came and died to break the bondage in our hearts to resist God and live for ourselves. He came to break us free from that. He came to give us new life. He came to give us forgiveness and hope. He came to rescue us from us. Our hope is in the cross. Our hope is in the grace of God, his steadfast mercy, his good. We go back to Ephesians 1 and 3. We're motivated to obey God, to listen to him, to trust in him because of what he has done for us. We're motivated. We see this new meaning in our parenting, this new meaning in what it means to be a child. Every rebellious act of a child and every outburst of anger of a parent reveals the depth of the hold of sin on our hearts that Jesus came to break. Let him break that curse. Confess of those sins. Repent of those things. Acknowledge how you have used authority for your own gain. Acknowledge how you have rebelled against authority for your own freedom and plead with God for his mercy. And when you do, when you humbly submit to him, it is in that moment we are living out the life that Christ has called us to by his grace. Let's never forget the cross in our working, in our parenting, in our following our parents. Let's remember his grace. Let's pray.